Robert Hooke came to Christchurch to sing in the choir, apparently, in 1653 or 1654, and then matriculated as an undergraduate in July 1658. This single line entry, he's just about halfway down the page. Um, there, right, just there. Yes, otherwise you won't be able to see a thing. Good idea. That better? This single line entry in the Dean's Admission Book is the only mention of him as a resident member of Christchurch. There are no battles books from the period, and even if there were, he wouldn't appear in them as a mere commoner undergraduate. The same applies to the chapter books, only those in receipt of a stipend warrant a listing. Even the ledger listing the payment of caution money, that insurance that they paid against damages or financial default, seems to ignore Hooke's presence completely. So we actually know very little about Hooke's presence at Hooke's own time at Christchurch. But we do know a little more about Christchurch during the Commonwealth period. This is roughly what Christchurch would have looked like. Um, it's dated 1578, but little change between then and the 1660s. Um, unfinished and uh, very definitely not quite as splendid as it was later. The buildings were in a state of incompleteness, unfinished by Wolsey and much abused over the next century. The Oxford and the colleges, particularly Christchurch, had been through two decades of extraordinary upheaval by the time of Hooke's arrival. In 1636, Charles I had visited the city to some acclamation and had been spoilt with dinners, concerts and plays. The dramatics put on at Christchurch, of which this is the receipt, were staged by Inigo Jones and cost a fortune. The costumes alone were over £300, which works out at around about £45,000 today. Uh, the set, set design was another 260, which is the top figure on the, on the list, um, and there was another £122 for the propsmen. Quite extraordinary figures. But by 1642, things had changed out of all recognition, and Charles returned more as a desperate survivor than, than a magnificent monarch. When civil war broke out in 1642, Oxford and the university, along with much of the country, declared itself for the king. Christchurch paid dearly. Its contribution to the loan requested by the king was probably in the region of 4,000 pounds, but this was just the tip of the iceberg. In October 1642, King and Court, along with senior army officers, moved in. There's very little evidence, again, I mean, almost as little as there is a hook of the King actually being resident in, in Christchurch. Um, this is a page from the Cathedral Register of Births, Marriages and Burials, which actually shows the Court, the College, the Cathedral and the Army all trying to operate together um, on that page are members of the army who were, who were buried, um, members of the court, uh, and members of college. In addition to the loan and the expenses of having the king on the premises, rents, which formed the backbone of revenue, were failing to come in. And as student numbers plummeted, incomes from fees dwindled as well. 
Oxford fell to the parliamentarians in June 1646, and the new regime, which was to become all too familiar over the next 14 years, began to take shape. The visitors, charged with reforming the university, began their task in May 1647, but immediately found themselves under attack from the doctors and masters, headed by Samuel Fell, the Dean of Christchurch and Vice-Chancellor. The visitors were frustrated at every turn until they imprisoned Fell in desperation. Edward Reynolds, a Presbyterian, took Fell's place, both as Vice-Chancellor and as Dean, but not before poor Mrs Fell was forcibly removed, still sitting on her chair from the deanery. Samuel Fell died on, died on either the 1st or 2nd of February 1649, apparently of a broken heart on hearing the news of the execution of the king he'd worked so hard to support. In 1650, Reynolds, the replacement, refused to sign the engagement and a new dean was appointed to Christchurch. John Owen had served as chaplain to the expeditionary force to Ireland and then to the army in Scotland. He was a loyal supporter of and friend to Oliver Cromwell. Also appointed vice-chancellor, Owen tried to reform Oxford, but seems to have been very intelligent in his dealings with doctors and masters and anxious to put the college back on its feet. In Owen, as I said, a protege of Oliver Cromwell, Christchurch was given a remarkable dean who valued tranquility possessed the art of turning a blind eye, but also knew when to put his head over the parapet. Owen outwardly defied the Puritan stereotype. He couldn't tell from this picture, but <laughs> he often dressed flamboyantly. He raised and led his own troops from within the university when necessary and showed tolerance with the university's Anglicanism, turning a blind eye to the services being held by Fell and Alstree just down the road in Merton Street. This is the famous triple portrait of Fell, Dolben and Allstreet, the three friends who worked together during the Commonwealth and then ran Christchurch for the next 20 years after the Restoration. Owen handled small irritations like positions of seniority swiftly and effectively and still allowed grand events like the Act Supper to take place. Christchurch also owed to Owen's friendship with Cromwell the retention of its landed estate. Student numbers had plummeted during the Civil War but after the departure of the king in 1646, they began to pick up again. By the time Hook arrived, there were more students than ever. 1646 saw 69 new admissions with a further 66 in the following year, compared with only 27 in the early 1640s. Some students were working overseas and in other official capacities for the protectorate. Henry Garrard, for example, was granted leave of absence in 1654, as he was employed upon special service for the Commonwealth in the present expedition by sea. This was the rather disastrous expedition to Hispaniola. Um, this is also one of only two documents that we have in the archive, signed by Oliver Cromwell as protector, obviously taking the place of the monarch. Uh, this one in 1654, a fairly firm signature. The second one, which was done in 1658, just a couple of months before he died, is very, very shaky, and you can obviously illness and, and stress, I would have said as much as anything, getting, getting to the man by that period. Tutors and officers like Richard Lower, maintained the educational vigour. Men were still taking degrees, and in many ways the academic standards were higher than in pre-war days. No one was permitted to be a tutor in the house without the dean's approval, and those excluded by the visitors were definitely not to teach. 
Men were to read constantly to their scholars from approved classical authors and cause them to come together to pray privately. Chapel, at which of course the directory had replaced the prayer book, was compulsory every morning and evening, and senior men were expected to set example to juniors in religious duty. Every man was expected to study properly towards his degree, and time that was spent in ways other than study would not count towards their residence requirement. So no rugby playing. <laughs> Puritans in Christchurch, thank you. Uh, <laughs> Degrees were to be received in person, never in absentia, and all bills had to be paid on pain of losing one's degree. Life in 1650s Christchurch appears to have been relatively peaceful, but not everything was harmonious. And it was in the dining hall, as so often is the case, that niggles of discontent between the established members of the house and the newly intruded men made their presence felt. Usually, at Christmas, the annual election took place which established all the students in their places according to their seniority for the following year. The traditional progress up the scale of seniority represented by the movement from table to table in hall had been muddled by the changes among the membership from royalist sympathisers to parliament's men, and no one knew exactly where they stood. Not unlike recent times in Greece, the governing body decided that two elections in quick succession were the way to deal with it, to satisfy both parties and take away doubts and differences amongst them. Eventually, though, the new and old students shook down together, so much so that within a year they were united in the perpetual complaint about low pay. No doubt an almost universal voice was raised in 1653 against a decree by the visitors that every undergraduate must give account to a suitable person every Sunday of the sermon heard in chapel or of the religious exercises performed. I can't imagine that the suitable person found it exactly exhilarating <laughs> either. But Certainly George Annesley, another one of these gentlemen sent away overseas um, on special service, was admonished for affronting the dean and chapter when they entered hall to observe the new rule. Undergraduates still misbehaved and paid the consequences. William Devereux was publicly whipped and rusticated for 12 months for diverse, gross and scandalous acts, and another man called Knight for diverse disorders and misdemeanours. Annesley, the one we've just heard about who affronted the dean and chapter, already an MA, was reprimanded for being seen in a tippling house on a Sunday. <laughs> Even members of staff were not immune to the increased vigilance. Hawks and Wilkins, underbutlers, were fined an immense 20 shillings, that's around about 150 pounds, each for drinking health and committing other misdemeanours lately at one Gregory's house. In a good Puritan manner, their fines were distributed amongst the poor of the parish. It's gone quite a long way, £150 each, I would have thought. As the 1650s wore on, rules were tightened still further. Cavalier fashions such as long powdered hair or extravagant clothes were discouraged, and excessive spending in the buttery was distinctly frowned upon. Ingress and egress was carefully controlled by the dean, who ordered that new gates be set up near the stables and the meadow with keys only to be held by the porter or the dean himself. Life in the cathedral continued with new canons imposed in the places of those whose views were too traditional, but there were inevitable changes. One of the first chapter acts required that the organ be taken down, and in June 1651, the dean and chapter ordered that the stained and painted glass be removed from the cathedral windows, where they showed God, good or bad angels or saints. And this is the, the chapter decree from the book, from the chapter book. 
The glass was to be used to repair broken windows anywhere in college. Only one of the Van Linger painted windows installed in the 1630s survived the order. And this is the one of Jonah. And I think it's actually quite significant that it is the one of Jonah. It's the one showing a man repenting on his sins. And I'm sure it's the only reason why that that's, that's the one that's still, still intact. The remainder was smashed by the Puritan canon Henry Wilkinson in what was reported as little more than an act of violent iconoclasm. Some fragments of glass are still in the clear story if you go in, into the cathedral. And it's only in the last couple of years that many more have been discovered during work in the cathedral. Services changed, of course, and attendance was much more closely monitored. The censors were paid a special allowance for assisting at services, and the university heard a weekly sermon in the cathedral at 4pm on Thursdays. Tutors were required to bring their scholars together for prayers every night, and to call them to an account every Lord's Day concerning what they have learned from the word prayed. So not just on Sundays did they have to actually go and report what they'd listened to in the sermon, but every day as well. Today's tutors, I think, could <laughs> have a lot to say about that. <laughs> Interestingly, the administration of the college was probably better than it had been for years. In the 1640s, throughout the turmoil of the Civil War, the treasurer had watched the coffers empty. No sooner had Charles I fallen than a new regime imposed in Christchurch. Attempts were made to recharge the finances. The treasurer was given a grant to allow him to impose almost any measure he wished to bring in rents and dues. And throughout the 1650s, problems on the landed estates particularly that had been pushed under the carpet for many years were pulled out and dealt with. As far as we can tell, unfortunately, most of the financial papers from the 1650s are missing. Things were on a fairly firm foundation by the time Charles II returned to England. The Restoration saw a swift return to old ways. After the bells had rung for two days to celebrate the King's return, at a cost of 15 shillings, that's the ringing of the bells, not the King's return, um, <laughs> the first entry in the chapter book for 1660 orders that the canon's table be set up again in the hall according, to who has been, according as hath been accustomed heretofore in the house. Now, this sounds humorous that the first concern of the house was to worry about who sat where at dinner, but it was actually far more significant. Christchurch had survived during the Commonwealth because of its unique, strange, dual nature of college and cathedral. And throughout its history, the place has actually used this to its advantage. When cathedrals were under attack, we've become an academic institution. When academic institutions were threatened with reform, we became an ecclesiastical establishment. While other cathedrals were emptied and threatened with abolition, Christchurch survived. The re-establishment of the canon's table, therefore, was putting the chapter firmly back at the head of college where they belonged. Familiar routines were rapidly re-established, fasting nights and gaudy days were reintroduced, Latin prayers began again and monthly communion was revived. The accounts record the purchase of a damask cloth for the communion table, 18 new common prayer books, a new Bible in the large Cambridge edition, repairs to the organ and to the pulpit. Even across the road in Wolsey's almshouse, it's now the lodgings of the Master of Pembroke College, uh, things returned to normal when the old soldiers and sailors of the Crown, who were evicted in 1650 to allow the rooms to be occupied by Parliament's men, were restored to their places. And Hook, if he did come here as a chorister in 1653, was resident through much of this period. Although he didn't take a conventional bachelor's degree, 
He had, as we know, studied and experimented and discovered, like few men before and probably after in Christchurch, that was physically little more than a building site and a military parade ground battered and bruised by the fall of its founder and by civil war. By the time he left for London, Christchurch was being rebuilt in every way to become the place that we recognise today. And it was only in the 1660s that this happened, as Hook was off to London. Thank you very much.